James Holland, brilliant to have you with me for 20 Questions With. I want to start by asking you, well, I should introduce you a little bit, but I will kind of want you to do that for yourself. But you write fiction, you write nonfiction, you're a historian, you're fascinated by the Second World War, you do a podcast series with Al Murray, the comedian, someone I interviewed many, many years ago for my old BBC Five Minutes With series. There's lots to talk about. We'll talk about the form of the podcast. We'll talk about being a historian. We'll talk about the fun you have with it. We'll talk about the art of writing, all that sort of stuff. But first of all, answer me this. Why does history matter? Well, I think it's... Um, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Um, it's um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, secondly, um, to answer that question... I think it's sort of it's it's very hard to make sense of the present or prepare for the future without an understanding of the past, and so that's why it's relevant, really. And the tentacles of the past sort of spread everywhere. I mean, obviously, my field is the Second World War, where absolutely you can feel the tentacles of that that incredible conflict to this very day. But I think you know, otherwise, how do we know where we're from? How do we know why we are who we are? The cultural makeup, the ethnic makeup, all the rest of it. Our past always comes into it, um, and it and it always helps us to. As I say, make sense of of who we are and why we are where we're at, and and you know, people always sort of say a lot of the time, sort of history repeats itself. I don't believe that, but I do think patterns of human behaviour do. So, for example, you know, you have a sort of massive international um, financial crisis at the end of the nineteen twenties and into the nineteen thirties, and out of that becomes huge political upheaval um, that leads to war. And you, you know, you see exactly the same thing happening in two thousand and eight. You know, huge financial crisis, perhaps not as bad as the one in nineteen twenty nine um, with the Wall Street crash, but still pretty severe. And then you have populist politics, you have lots of disruption, you have Brexit, you have um, the war in Ukraine. You know, it all follows as as, as sure as night follows day. Really. Is it ever possible to do justice to the gritty, dirty, painful, brutal reality of war through words? Justice, no, but I think you can I think you can give people a pretty pretty clear impression. I mean it's interesting the, the, the book I'm working on at the moment, I'm I'm using a lot more contemporary sources than I would normally do. Um, so a lot more diaries and letters and so on. And they're, and they're just fascinated because of course they're written in the day, in the moment when it's happening. They don't know what's going to happen at the end of the Second World War. They don't know when Rome's going to fall or when D-Day's going to happen, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, it it's fa- been fascinated to do that. And their words that they're saying are really giving me an incredibly vivid picture and understanding i would say a greater understanding than i've had up to this point of what it was like actually being part of something quite so catastrophic and monumental as the war in which they found themselves whether i can do justice to those experiences i'm not you know that that that's up for grabs but i'm certainly getting a very clear clear impression and that is through their words so yeah i think you know not not you know there's no substitute for actually being there obviously um but but i think you can get a pretty good idea when you're doing your history, are you conscious of how it's impossible ever to get a definitive truth? Because if you think about contemporary politics, current affairs of today, there are so many different perspectives, aren't there? There's so many different ideas. There's so many different realities. There are trillions of facts. So trying to, as it were, nail it for a particular period of history, I mean, it is impossible, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. And, and, you know, as a historian, you're constantly making choices all the time about what you leave in and what you leave out. I mean, I would say I use, you know, between five and 10% of what you research. Um, that's just the way it is. And I don't think I'm, you know, I think any other historian would say probably the same. So you're you're constantly making decisions all the time about what you leave out. And that's just a, you, you, you kind of fancy yourself as being incredibly objective, but ultimately that's a subjective decision. What you do know is, is that, you know, a river was crossed at, uh, on a particular day at a particular time. That is a fact, and there's no disputing that. 
but but how that was crossed and and who was doing the crossing and the people you tend to focus on to kind of illustrate the human experience of crossing that river that's, that's a completely different kettle of fish altogether and of course you know i'm constantly making my own judgments on on how i assess the situations and the decisions that were made and and those are my judgments and that's one of the things why you know that, that's of, of course why you know every 10 years you can have another major book on d-day for example because there's always new new material that comes to light. Um, there's new perspectives, new ways of looking at things, and there's new choices about what you leave in and what you don't, which then ultimately alters the structure of the book you're trying to write or or the story you're trying to present. So, so you know, that's a that's a point very well made. Perspectives are so important, aren't they? I mean, we can have hugely different perspectives woven into our own personal history. Myself, my paternal grandfather was forced from Austria by the Nazis. He was a concert mm. pianist and he, he managed to get out and get his family out. And then on my mother's side, my mother's father was one of Phil Marshall Montgomery's aide-de-camp. So he was a major. He won the military cross, I think, for going up to enemy lines on his motorbike in, in advance oh. of the D-Day landing. So very oh, right. different What was his name? With, his name was Tom Howarth. He was oh. high master of St. Paul's, my old school, for a right. while. Right. He worked his way up, as I say, from a private peeling potatoes and, and then I think rode sort of almost pillion, rode in the, in, in the car with Montgomery when Paris was liberated, unless I'm getting Amazing. my history, history confused. So, yeah, so very different perspectives within me. And you're interested in looking at the Second World War through different eyes, aren't you, or from the perspectives of different protagonists. You've written a book, just for example, on Italy's sorrow. Yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about the Second World War from Italy's viewpoint, and and of course, within that viewpoint, it goes without saying there are so many there are so many different pairs of eyes. But how did you see it? Yeah, so that book was interesting. I don't think it's terribly helpful to write a book from the perspective of of you know your own the prism of one's own national experience. I think it's much better to try and look at things in the round. And and what I noticed was that a lot of narrative historians, you know, what they were doing is you'd have lots about the human drama of war, but what you'd do is you'd have a you know, you'd have a sentence here, um, you know, some forgotten, forgettable person would would recount his experience of, I don't know, being in a tank or flying a Spitfire or whatever it might be. But you wouldn't get to know them. And I felt it was a much more effective way to draw in the in, in a potential reader by having a quite a defined cast list. And in the case of Italy Sorrow, that means, you know, German views, British views, American Canadian and Italian as well, of course. Um, so that you're getting that kind of sort of that cross section. And the other thing I noticed, particularly when it comes to the Italian campaign, is people tend to sort of um, write about the military, you know, the actual kinetic stuff, the fighting, um, and, and almost kind of ignore the fact that there's a kind of population of 44 million. <laughs> the fact that, you know, vast numbers of village towns and cities are getting completely hammered and destroyed and, and what it must have been like for them. So, in Italy, sorry, I was doing it from from that, you know, consciously trying to do it from that perspective and trying to kind of reinsert the Italian experience into that campaign because it was like a sort of typhoon of steel that just kind of sort of, you know, like a, I don't know, like the sort of worst ever twister, kind of just going down straight down the leg of Italy and just sort of destroying everything in its wake. And of course, there was a civil war going on at the same time, effectively, you know, because there were kind of those who were pro-fascist and pro-very strong um, single government, and there were those who were wanting democracy and freedom and, you know some who wanted communism and all sorts. So there was there was a sort of partisan war going on at the same time. 
And I thought that was very interesting and how that partisan war um, impacted on civilian population and, and in which, you know, those partisans were operating. And, you know, the long and short of it was it was it was very unpleasant and very bad. So it was a fascinating period. And, you know, we all go to Italy and go and have a look. You know, if you go on holiday there, you you go and sort of, I don't know, look at the Leaning Tower of Pisa or go to Venice or Rome or whatever it might be. And you, you just think of all those wonderful art artworks and museums and amazing churches and statues and you know the renaissance and so on it's kind of easy to forget that there was this absolutely horrendous war kind of rushing straight through the length of that peninsula that boot of um that leg of italy all those years ago how important do you think winston churchill was to the war effort against germany and to put it bluntly do you think that the allies would have won without churchill well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I think Churchill, the, the closest Britain comes to losing the war is Monday, the 27th of May, 1940. And it's when it's looking incredibly unlikely that the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, is going to be successfully evacuated from Dunkirk. You know, optimistic um, uh, suggestions are around 40,000, uh, when in actual fact it's 338,000 and a half that, that, that managed to get pulled back. And on that morning... Lord Halifax, who is the foreign secretary, is urging the war cabinet, which is only five men, to think about peace feelers via the Italians. And what Churchill says is, if you do that, the door comes ajar and it then gets slammed wide open and you you can never go back. You can't do that. You, there is no reason for, for, for throwing in the towel at this stage. And Halifax goes, I'm not suggesting we do. I'm just suggesting we kind of look into the possibilities of it. And they have a really major argument about it, a policy argument. And at the time, Halifax, not Churchill, is the most respected man and politician in, in, in the country. He's an ex-viceroy of India. He's known for his good judgment, sound sense, cool head, all those sort of things. And he threatens to resign that afternoon. And had he done so, I think it's 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 almost certain that the government would have fallen. And if it had fallen, then they wouldn't have been able to concentrate properly on Dunkirk, the evacuation. That might have floundered. A whole load of other things might have happened. And you could easily see a situation where, where Britain does kind of sue for peace in, in kind of middle of June, you know, at the same time as the French. So I think he was incredibly important in staving off that rebellion. He talks Halifax out of resigning. Two days later, it's never mentioned ever, ever again. He's completely won over not only the war cabinet, but the wider cabinet to this, this idea that we should fight on come what may and all the rest of it. And in the summer of 1940, there's absolutely no question at a time where, you know, he only, take over, he only took over as prime minister on the 10th of May. So at the time of this existential crisis on Monday, the 27th of May, it's only 17 days into his premiership. But later on in the summer, you know, those speeches, which are listened to around 64% of the country, you know, that includes everyone in the country. So that's that's the vast majority of the adult population are listening to that. You know, he was providing a kind of glue and a cohesiveness and a vision for how we could pro protract the war and, and keep going and, 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 and ultimately win out that I think was incredibly persuasive and incredibly important. And one of the things that's, that, that one does have to kind of bear in mind is that Germany is materially incredibly poor. It's stuck in the middle of Europe, doesn't have access to the world's oceans, whereas Britain does. Britain has, even in 1940, has the world's largest merchant fleet, the world's largest navy, um, has this huge uh, um, um, empire and dominions and extra imperial assets as well, all of which are hugely in its favour. And I think what 
Churchill has in 1940, which Hitler doesn't and which Mussolini don't have, um, and which also, incidentally, um, um, Roosevelt shares, is enormous geopolitical understanding. He just gets how the world works. He understands the constraints. He understands the importance of, of logistics, of supplies, um, of finances, of global reach, of mechanization, of modernity, of industrialization, all those sort of things in a way that the, the Nazis simply don't um, and in which the fascist power don't either. And I think that's a, a huge advantage. Could Britain have survived without Churchill? Well, you know, it's in, in, impossible to say. I mean, Britain had a lot of lot of things in its favour in the Second World War. Um, all those things that I've just mentioned, you know, merchant fleets and navies and so on. But but he was certainly a um, you know he was a brilliant brilliant war leader. That there is absolutely no question whatsoever. What would the world have looked like, James, if the Allies had not won the war? Pretty bleak, I think. What you'd have had is you'd had a uh, you'd have had a world that was dominated by two extremes, by communism and by by the Nazis, by the far right and the far left. Uh, and it would have been a very dark place indeed. I think I mean, it would have been absolutely catastrophic. How important was the French war effort in the Allied victory? You're, you're sort of smiling. Well, you know, because just every time you think about the French, it's just really, really frustrating. I mean, you know, they in, in 1940, they have a larger army than the Germans. They have double the number of artillery pieces. They have parity in terms of air power. You know, they're, they're highly industrialised. They do have access to the world's oceans. They've got a large navy. They've got a large merchant fleet. You know, there's a lot of, of assets and there's no real reason why they shouldn't have shouldn't have prevailed in 1940. But but they didn't because they had political upheaval um, and um, you know, huge coalitions in the 1930s. And if you don't have political strength, then it's very hard to have military strength as well. Um, but whenever you look at whenever one thinks about the, Fr the French in 1940, you know, it's just one. Is looking at it with deep frustration that they they couldn't have prevailed. I mean, they they absolutely should have done. So the French are important because uh, you know they're playing a role in the first part of the war and 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 stiffening resolve and and you know it would have been much harder for Britain to go alone. I think in 1939 without the support of France as her ally. Later on in the war, you know the French play uh, the Free French play a key role in in North Africa, um, uh, ensuring that the Allies get a, a foothold in in fishing controlled North Africa, which then switches over. French play a key role in 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 the Italian campaign. Um, they play a very important part in the, in the Southern French campaign. Um, so the, the yeah, French, they do play the a French, part. The, the French resistance, of course. Yeah, I think one has to be very careful not to overcook the French resistance. Um, the French resistance in the summer of 1944 plays a plays a key role. But, you know, there's an awful lot more people in France who were not involved with the resistance. And, and actually, there were even more people who were kind of resisting the resistance. Uh, and, and that's no criticism of France whatsoever. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy kind of the Max Hastings view that, that it was a complete waste of time. I, I think SOE F section was probably a bit of a waste of time because it's very hard to, to implement sabotage operations with people who aren't French because they tend to stand out like a sore thumb. Um, particularly when most of the kind of young male population has been sent to Germany. So, you know, if you're a young male and, and you're prancing around France, it's quite easy for the, for the, uh, for the German, the Nazi security forces to kind of track you down, I would think. Um, and particularly when there's plenty of people who aren't in sight, but interested in you being there. So prepared to kind of snitch on you and so on. But, you know, the, 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 um, the Jedbras, these teams of sort of, you know, French, American and British who were going in and helping to galvanise the Maquis in the summer of 1944. Yeah, absolutely. They played a key role. And I also think it was important for kind of French pride that you do have a kind of a, you know, hardcore of people that are resisting, you know, particularly when it comes to kind of post-war and getting on with life again. Um, but, but yeah, I think you have to be kind of slightly careful about kind of how much the French resistance 
existed up until about 1944. Explain then the significance of the North Africa campaign, El Alamein, Field Marshal Montgomery. I mean, you've written about this, haven't you? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, the point about the North Africa campaign is that it was really a campaign that was begun out of opportunism from the British point of view. I mean, they didn't ask Italy to declare war on them in, on the 10th of June, 1940, 1940. Um, Egypt wasn't part of the British Empire, but it was a British protectorate, which was a kind of sort of euphemism for saying, you know, we can be there wherever we want and do what we like. Um, and the Italians invaded Italy and it was an opportunity to kind of sort of strike back. Um, not invaded Italy, sorry, invaded Egypt in September 1940. And then in December 1940, the British counterattacked and 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 whipped them, and then the Germans came in and got involved. And and you know from a from a broad perspective, it's quite sensible for for Britain, who has always had a very very small army and whose whose alliance with France was organised in such a way that France would do the kind of the ground bit and and that we would do the lion's share of the naval work and and burgeoning air power. So you know suddenly after after Dunkirk and the fall of France. Britain's having to kind of completely reconstitute itself and, and build this army, which it which it just doesn't have, and it has to do it in very very quick order. So, North Africa is a good testing ground, and also it's 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 a place where it's much more convenient for Britain to fight than it is for Germany, and even frankly Italy, because Italy doesn't have much, the merchant fleet doesn't have much naval power in the big scheme of things, and it's got to get across the sea. Every you know, North Africa can only happen by people getting to it across oceans and seas. So there's an advantage to that. And and the real thing really is in the, in the sort of late 1942, when the Americans are suddenly in the war, they're kind of training in, in, in Britain. Um, and suddenly there is a kind of sort of urgent, compelling need to try and draw troops away from the Eastern Front in the summer of 1942. And the Americans promise the Soviet Union that they will take on the Germans that year. But it's absolutely inconceivable that they're going to do a cross-channel invasion in 1942. So... North Africa allows them to take on the Germans. And the bottom line is, is, is Vichy France has already ceded Indochina, what becomes Vietnam, to the Japanese. So there is a precedence there that suggests that Vichy might also cede that land to the Germans. And if they cede, if Vichy France ceded North Africa, Northwest Africa to the Germans, that would have been a really, really bad move, which is what helps persuade Roosevelt that landing an Anglo-American force in Northwest Africa at the same time as a British force is coming from the east to the west is a very, very good idea. So it becomes the North African campaign reaches its climax in the spring of 1943 in Tunisia. But it is it began as a as a as a, a campaign of strategic opportunism, but one which gave lots of advantages in the long term. Two questions kind of wrapped up into one, I'm cheating, related to North Africa. H how would Field Marshal Montgomery and, and those around him have got to North Africa? Would they have flown or would they have gone by boat? And while they were gone, was there not some degree, at least, of insecurity amongst the British population that their, their Field Marshal was you know, quite some distance away? Was there no concern at that point that Britain itself was vulnerable? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think there was because the invasion threat had gone really by the spring of 1941. So what you have is you have the Battle of Britain that doesn't work for the Luftwaffe. Then they have the Blitz that doesn't work either. Everyone knows that you can't, you you just simply cannot do um, an amphibious invasion unless you've got control of the skies above you, and they they don't, uh, and that's completely correct. So the, so the fear of an invasion recedes, and also further recedes, of course, once the Germans have got their hands full 
um, first of all, in um, in the Balkans and the, in the Mediterranean, they're getting involved in that, and then obviously Barbarossa, which is the invasion of the Soviet Union, which is kind of pretty all-consuming for the for the uh, for the German forces. So that recedes. So actually, sending you know, and also there's lots and lots of generals. I mean, there's lots of generals still back in the UK. I mean, Montgomery is not the only general, um, and in fact, actually, he's he's uh, um, fourth choice for for Eighth Army. The first one's Cunningham. He gets sacked, and then Ritchie gets comes in, makes an absolute hash of it, gets sacked. Then Gott comes in over over Ritchie, uh, promptly dies in a um, when his plane is shot down. Uh, and it's only at that point that Montgomery gets um, gets sent over to take over command of Eighth Army. But also at the same time, you've got Alexander, who's moved in to become commander in chief of um, British forces Middle East, um, and he is Montgomery's superior. And in many ways is the designer of the campaign. I mean, it, he is the one who goes, there shall be no more reverses. There shall be no more retreats. You know, we stand and fight. Um, uh, and that's something that kind of Monty jumps on the bandwagon um, and quite rightly so. But but it is actually Alexander who's kind of rather forgotten about in the, in the kind of sort of broader narrative. But 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 yeah, someone like like Montgomery is being flown over. I mean, the vast majority of troops are coming round to South, Southern Africa. But also the other point is because there's so many Dominion troops there, um, the Middle East is actually quite a good sort of meeting point because, you know, you've got troops coming from Australia, you've got, you know, New Zealand, South Africa, um, India. Um, and obviously it's easier to get there and go go through, um, um, go up the Suez Canal than it is to go all the way around Africa and go to Britain. So um, it's it's a combination. It's a, it's a, it's a truly polyglot force, um, what you call Duke forces, which is Dominion's UK and Empire. Um, it, it's a real mixed force. And that's that's very much kind of a sign of, of Britain's global strength rather than its weakness. A key moment in the Second World War, of course, was Pearl Harbour on my birthday, 7th of ah, December. 7th of December. And I'm curious to know how coordinated the Japanese and German war efforts were. Yeah, hardly at all. I was going to was was Hitler and and his generals were they talking to Japan was was this was there a sense in which they really were a united axis force or or are these quite disparate parts of the world war no they're they're completely disparate they're totally different agendas different things it's a it's a marriage of convenience and it's basically saying you know I'll keep off your patch you keep off my patch and we'll kind of we'll share a little bit of intelligence you know, that's basically the limit of it germany was a terrible ally to all its allies i mean you know treated them like dirt the japanese it kind of had less to do with um and also if you're a kind of a white supremacist then 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 japanese people are, are kind of you know they're they're lower in your pecking order um so no it's 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 absolutely bizarre i, I mean germany I mean, a huge amount of has been made of of the kind of disagreements between Britain and America during the Second World War and their coalition partners rather than formal allies. Actually, it was a marriage made in heaven and certainly compared to the kind of how Germany treated its own allies, which were formal allies. I mean, absolutely appallingly. It treated Italy appallingly, Romania, Hungary, all these places. I mean, just just treated them like dirt. How do you look at the American approach to the war? And do you think that they would have become involved even without Pearl Harbor? Yeah, I think they would have done. Well, they were involved. I mean, they were involved already because they were supplying arms. It's it's a bit like saying, you know, America, the United States isn't involved in the current conflict in Ukraine and Russia. Of course it is. It's absolutely up to his neck in it. it uh, and in one way, so, you know, giving another country, uh, um, you know, fighting a proxy war is a kind of very effective way of doing things because because your young men aren't being killed, but you're getting the result you want. Well, you know, that's 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 the aim. I mean, and an interesting, you know, the Atlantic fleet is already operating by second half of 1942, uh, 41 rather, um, in the Atlantic. 
the destroyer, the Reuben James, is sunk in 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 October 1941. It's a destroyer, you know, destro- destroyed by a by um by a U-boat, um, commanded by Eric Top. And you know, Woody Guffrey writes a song about it, a folk song about the Reuben James. You know, and it causes absolute outrage. And and there is no question that the nation is turning. You know, the the, the people who are in the kind of Charles Lindbergh tank, the kind of uh, the appeasers, they're kind of being pushed to the side. And the vast majority of the population is absolutely behind rearmament and and um, militarizing um, a, a U.S. industry. And there is absolutely inevitable inevitability about it that it's going to happen. I mean, obviously, Pearl Harbor is a trigger, but interestingly, even then, it's not until the 11th of December that, that, that Germany declares war on America rather than the other way around. When did the British population become aware of what was going on to Jewish people at the hands of the Nazis? To, to what extent were Brits aware that they were fighting, not just, as it were, for the freedom of Europe, but also for the lives of Jewish people who were suffering the Holocaust? Well, for the most people, it wasn't until the camps were liberated. I, I mean, obviously, Allied leadership knew about it a lot earlier because um, people had escaped from Auschwitz and they had escaped from Treblinka and, and other places. And so there were reports made and, and detailed reports. I mean, the most detailed report, of course, was the um, the Verba Vexter uh, um, report by two people who managed to escape from Auschwitz. I think in, if I'm right in saying, saying that they escaped in March 1944. And I think their report was issued by, by uh, a month later. But... Uh, so, so the leadership did know about that. You know, quite a lot of people were were um, when they read these reports were were doubtful. They couldn't believe that anyone could do something quite as as horrific um, as sort of mass executions, mass gassing, and mass murdering. Um, but but your average punter on the street didn't know about that stuff. How inevitable was the way in which the world panned out politically after the Second World War? Well, you know, six years of war for 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 the for for Britain and for a lot of the other Western powers and longer for Japan absolutely took their toll. America was in it slightly, obviously less time, but, but, but equally kind of, you know, more than contributed, you know, in a global sense was the biggest contribution. So it meant that, that the communist threat wasn't going to be taken on by the, by the West in anything other than a cold war. Um, and, And I think it meant, you know, there was exhaustion, financial exhaustion, physical exhaustion, mental exhaustion, at the end of it, which meant that that's why you had Poland split up. That's why you had the Iron Curtain develop and all the rest of it. So I think it was pretty inevitable, really. I, I, I mean, the end of the war is kind of marred by 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 Japan and, and, and Germany's refusal to throw in the towel even long after it's it's been defeated. I mean, I mean, you, you, you can argue that Germany had no way back from the kind of autumn of 1941 um, and argue, frankly, that quite convincingly. But certainly by second half of 1944, it was absolutely on its knees. I mean, it's completely finished. It was never going to do it. And, and the fury with which the Allies would continue to destroy cities, I think, was based largely on their frustration that that that, that Germany was still fighting when it was so obviously defeated. I mean, you know, you give up, we stop bombing your cities. It's a very easy equation. Uh, but also was was augmented by that kind of mounting concern about having to invade the Japanese home islands. Uh, and what was being experienced in the Far East was that the closer you got to Japan, the harder the Japanese fought. And there was this terrible fear that the war was going to go on into 1946, that they'd have to invade Japan. It was going to be absolutely bloody and brutal and millions more people would be killed, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I think all those things are coming into play. And what that means is those in the West are not pushing as hard as they might do to kind of push back the borders against um, the, the, the threat from the communist East. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why the Allies don't go into Berlin, for example. You know, why, why should we go into Berlin when the Russians can lose their lives taking the city? Um, and if that means after the war, that's most of most of Germany is is behind the Iron Curtain. And that's the price you have to pay because we've still got a job to do. And that's get rid of Japan. Which of the two world wars, James, First World War and Second World War, do you think was most traumatic for Britain? Gosh, that's a question I've never been asked. Goodness me. Well, obviously, the the, the loss of life was far greater in the in the First World War. Um, I, I think that loss of a whole so much of a young generation, I think, were, were, was more traumatic. But I think the longer term effect, effects of the Second World War have been greater. In what sense? Well, in sense of of how Britain changed, um, the financial cost, the the cost to its relationships with the rest of the world. Uh, I think that that's what I mean, really. You've set up, and I didn't say this in my introduction. Well, did you set up the Chalk Valley History Festival? Is it your baby? Yes, I was one of the founders of that, yeah. So, and as I understand it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, it's the biggest sort of specifically history festival in the, in Britain. Yeah. And I've never been. I've been very heavily involved. Oh, well, you in, must. In the Salisbury Literary Festival, International Salisbury oh. Literary Festival, but or Literature Festival. But it sounds amazing. Just talk us through it very briefly and the fun you have in bringing historians from different experts of different periods in, in history together <laughs> on, under one roof or into one marquee or whatever it is. Well, yes, it's not a um, it's not a literary history festival. It is very much a festival of history. So, yes, we do have talks and standalone talks by the best historians we can get hold of. But we also have lots of discussions as well. But there's also um, there's performance, there's live music, there's there's um, living history. There's so many different aspects to it. And, and we, we hold it in beautiful fields and surrounded by kind of chalk downland. Um, and it's um it's a lovely gathering, actually. And and the talks and discussions we do do, are, you know, you have huge tents, but you also have much more sort of intimate spaces where you can sort of get up close and personal, all that sort of stuff. What we're trying to do is try and make the whole thing relevant. So, you know, I think people are looking to the past more than ever to try and make sense of and try and contextualise the situation in which we find ourselves today. So, you know, we, we theme everything under different things, such as sort of, you know, conflict, politics, environment, society and culture, uh, sport, um, science and exploration. And, and everything comes under those one of those banners, if not multiple banners. But But it's fascinating to be able to see, I don't know, heritage crafts, to be able to see you know, medieval types and hairy Vikings and what have you, rubbing shoulders with great historians, you know, Tracy Borman or, or Peter Frankopan or Anthony Beaver, whoever it might be. You know, so it is a, it is quite an eccentric blend. But the idea is to try and, you know, we are answerable to a, a trust, a Chalk Valley History Trust, so it's a, it's a charitable organisation. And the idea is to try and get as many people from as many different ages as possible um, involved and, and excited by history. And we also have concurrently a schools festival. So we have thousands of school children over two days at the start of the festival week um, um, careering around. And um, again, you know, doing a mixture of kind of sort of firing cannons and listening to talks to doing sword school to learning how to do medieval weaving, whatever it might be, and music and so on. So it's it's, it's a real mix. It's, um, it's a lot of fun. How did you come to present a podcast with Al Murray? And what do you think is the the art of a good podcast? What are you, try, what are you guys trying to do? 
Well, I'd known Al for some years. He was he's a good mate. Um, and he, he's always been absolutely obsessed with the Second World War. And, and I was approached about doing this podcast by a guy called Tony Pasta, who runs, uh, he's one of the directors of Goalhanger Films, which he co-owns with Gary Lineker. And they do Match of the Day and various other things. But 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 he was very, Tony was very interested in history and particularly in the Second World War. So, and, and he knew knew the sort of uh, the work I was doing and um, said, said, would I be interested in doing a podcast? And could I think of anyone to do it with? And I immediately said, yeah, I'll do it with Al. Let's sound him out. So I, I caught up with Al and I said, well, you know, what about it? And he went, yeah, I'm game. And, um, and Al inevitably being the the genius comic he is came up with the title um and we've been doing it for kind of you know nearly four years now and um it's been a lot of fun i mean i th- I think there's two ways of approaching podcasts i mean i think there either tends to be the kind of investigation kind of type you know where it's someone going off and kind of looking into a cold case or something i don't know whatever it might be escaping from from east berlin um or i think you know it it, it needs to be conversational and and it's, it's about the, the chemistry isn't it and about casting um, a light on something that people don't know much about, but are kind of sort of, you know, that they've always been sort of background interested and want to know more. Um, in the case of us, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're good mates. And I think that kind of shows. And I think we're able to, you know, we are both genuinely excited about what we're learning about and what, what we're discovering in this enormous all consuming conflict. And I think we're able to kind of go beyond what, people were normally able to get there you know normally if you if you're interested in the second world war what do you do is you, you you watch band of brothers and saving private ryan and you might watch a documentary or, or you might read anthony beaver or whatever but those are sort of quite limited you can't really sort of get to the degree what you're not going to do is read a kind of sort of a massive academic tome published by cambridge university press with two thousand footnotes you're just not because it's academic and dry and all the rest of it and ultimately you're really interested but you also want to be entertained I think what we can do is we can we can sort of digest a lot of that academic thinking, but put it into the mainstream by by talking about it in a kind of easily accessible way, whether that be of a guest or whether that just be on our own. And I think that's appealing to people because I think people are kind of finding that they're learning something in a kind of easy to digest way and, and, and feeling part of the conversation and feeling as though they're kind of a fly on the wall of a pub conversation. I mean, that's that's sort of broadly the aim. And that doesn't mean you're not a fan of Anthony Bieber. No, I'm a massive fan of Anthony Beaver, and actually, he's been a friend of 25 years. I know him very well, and, and massive hats off and respect to him. I just think it, it, it. I mean, I could have said Max. I could have said myself. I could have said you know any number of historians who are writing books. But but my point is, I think you can go you can go a stage further with a podcast um, as uh, it kind of augments what you're reading, what you're watching, what you're learning on television. You're not the only. You're not the only successful person with a successful sibling, but what's it like having a successful older brother? Oh, it's great. I mean, I've always been very close to my bro and um, he's always been a huge inspiration for me. I, I can't imagine that I would ever become a writer at all or a historian had it not been for him. I mean, he was the one who kind of gave me a talking to before my O-levels and, and said, you really need to pull your finger out. And, you know, he's always been a great inspiration to me, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I'm in awe of his intellect and his knowledge. Um, and I'm a big fan of The Rest is History as well. I think it's a great podcast and <laughs> I'm an avid listener. I'm curious about your passions. Uh, one of them, I believe, is driving a classic car because we had to briefly interrupt this podcast when you were on the phone to your garage. And I think there's a problem with the gear stick but your, 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 <laughs> or gearbox. But, but your car is 70 years old. Well, yeah, it's a bit more than that actually. It's 1949, so it's yeah, it's, it's going to be 74 this year. Um, it's um, yeah, I drive that around all the time. I just I just really like it. Um, I, I actually, it's a, it's a it's an old. It's they're known as traction avant. Um, it's a it's a sort of French pre-war car that they made into the 1950s, and 
uh, when I was on my honeymoon uh, all those years ago, um, I, we were in Bordeaux and suddenly one of these cars just pulled into a little cobbled street and a guy in a leather jacket and slipped back hair got out, flicked away his cigarette, greeted his mates on the bar opposite and disappeared inside. And I remember saying to Rachel, that's literally one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I have to have one of those cars. Anyway, I subsequently discovered that they weren't terribly expensive in the big scheme of things. So um, even when I had absolutely no money to rub together at all, um, I bought one. And I've uh, and this is the one I've had now is I've had for 18 years or so. And I've, I've been driving ever since. And I drive it all the time. I mean, I, I literally, it is my car. Uh, my wife has a modern car, but but I don't. And um, I, I just love it. <laughs> I don't know why, really. And the wider question about passions, you're not allowed to mention cricket because I'm going to come to that later. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I love living in the countryside. I'm a, I'm a big walker and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I love walking and long distance walking and I love, I've sort of, a, I'm becoming a sort of, I don't sit there kind of looking for particular birds, but I'm, I'm quite interested in bird life and wildlife and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and also I, you know, my day I've done quite a lot of art as well. I quite like painting and, drawing and so on so those those are my my key passions i can in- encourage you to to get my bird book illustrated with my bird photographs called how to see birds then you might become even more interested in birds. yeah no i really will i, I was very happy the other day i was walking and I, I saw um i saw some lapwings for the first time in a couple of years so that was incredibly that was beautiful in, in flight almost bird oh, of pre- almost bird of prey-esque amazing amazing wing shape so so great to see them and you know i always get a real thrill when i see the first swifts and swallows in the in the spring and i hear my first chiff chaff and all that kind of stuff i kind of you know that i I get real genuine pleasure from that tell me about the impact penultimate question of being a historian on being you like how how big a part of your life is it and i don't just mean you spend a certain amount of time being a professional historian i mean to what extent is it part of your identity this this fascination with the past that's a good question. I, mean, I don't know. I've never really sort of thought of it in those terms. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm incredibly lucky because I I do lots of different things as a result of this knowledge and as a result of my ongoing learning of this subject, uh, which I just find endlessly fascinating. So I don't really feel I have a job as such. I mean, I, I, I you know, fortunately, what I do enables me to exist and live and 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 earn a living. But it's just endlessly fascinating, and so I suppose it is a big part of me um, because. In, in the same way that anyone who has a has a a very all-consuming job, it becomes a part of their life and, and a part of what they do. I mean, you know, I don't sort of come in at the end of the day and sit around the around the kitchen table over supper and kind of sit there talking about tiger tanks or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, I sort of leave it to one side. But but you know, particularly when you're following personal experiences and things, it's very hard not to get emotionally involved. I think because you feel like you get to know these people and. and you know, they're not just statistics. They're not just sort of people who are in a brigade or a division or an army or an air force. You know, they are individuals whose lives you have the responsibility of bringing back, you know, whether in, in print form or whether just verbally or whether visually. And uh, there's a responsibility that comes of that. And there is a, a an emotional involvement that comes of that, I think, um, which I find incredibly compelling. So, um, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate. Final question. This is a tricky one. Attempt to convince me that you, you love cricket more than I do. Because you're not a bad player, yeah. I are really you? do yeah. love. I do love I mean, cricket. I mean, you I mean, know, you said I couldn't say that in my passions. Cricket is my great, great passion. I, I, I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I would say I'm, a, I'm as obsessed with it as I ever have been. You know, I watch vast amounts of it. I play, play it a lot. I'm constantly checking scores. Um, when I should be writing, I have it. You know, matches on in the background. You're not bad and... though, are you? At playing, I mean, you, you, you nearly got a hundred stand at the Colombo Test Ground. Is that right? 
Yeah, no, I did. That was very exciting. Yeah, with Sebastian Folks. That was that was a that was a good moment in, in my cricketing life. Yeah, I had a terrible season last season. It was really awful. I'm sorry to have, you know, because I'm now 52, I'm kind of I'm worrying that um I'm on the I'm on the slide. But then I kind of sort of snap out of it and go, come on, no, it's fine. And actually I had a net the other day and I was actually I was I was feeling quite tidy. So so that was okay. I, I've got hundreds of cricket bats and and I just obsess about all that stuff and I get a massive thrill from meeting um, you know, anyone who's who's a sort of half decent player. So I don't know. I don't know how obsessed you are, Matthew, but um, I am very obsessed with cricket. It's just the most amazing sport on so many levels. It's the most it? amazing sport on so it, many levels. It, it, I, and actually, I love all forms of it as well. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm obviously I'm a massive fan of Test match cricket. I, I feel this is um, being an England supporter at the moment. I feel is 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 payback for being a loyal supporter <laughs> um, in the '90s and in the last sort of few years, which have been quite tough. Um, the 90s particularly was a dark period for an England supporter. It was very, very hard. But even then, um, even in the 90s, there were those great, mo- there were those great periods with Afton yeah. with his rearguard effort in South Africa with yeah, Jack yeah, Russell, yeah, 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 and then the, yeah. the, the the duel he had with Donald in with Alan Donald yes. in England, and there were the yes. twin centuries by Alex Stewart in Bombay yes, in his in 93 yes. or whatever it was. Yeah, you know, yeah, and then yeah. there was the skill of Angus Fraser and the sort of Bon or me and skill of, of Darren Goff. There were there were some highlights in in amongst in amongst the dross. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the hundred and seventy by Mark Butcher. Yeah, you know. Hundred seventy. That yeah, the hundred and sixty or whatever it was by Robin Smith at a one day international against. Oh yeah, yeah hundred sixty seven. Yeah, yeah. Trent Bridge wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. The, and then there was Botham's return in nineteen ninety two against the West Indies. There was there was the Graham Gooch end to his career when he was just almost unbowlable to. Which was yes, the 150 at Headingley and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah stark contrast to when he, was, <laughs> when he was Terry Alderman's bunny in 1989. I mean, you could go on. anyway. At the moment, it's almost too good to be true under Ben Stokes as captain. I just love it. I'm, I'm, I'm. I, I just think Ben Stokes is completely brilliant. I'm, I've, I've got a massive man crush on on Joss Butler, um, but I'm developing one quite, quite unhealthy one on Harry Brook as well. I have to say. He's just terrific. And you know, we love Johnny, don't we? And and the bowlers. I love Brody and Jimmy and. Uh, I'm I'm excited about the prospects of Joffre coming back. I hope he's in the test side. You know, you you know, this coming summer with the Ashes, you've got a potential for having, you know, a bowling squad of of, of Ollie Stone, of Mark Wood, of Joffre in the pace department, and then Ollie Robinson. So you'd probably go the you know, top Jimmy and Brody, and I I think it's all really looking great. If you put, if you pick if you pick three seamers alongside Stokes, and you and you probably have a spinner, he'll probably play Leach. If you pick three seamers, that is an unbelievably difficult selectorial dilemma. If everyone is fit, you'd probably go Ollie Robinson, Jimmy Anderson and Joffre Archer. Probably, yeah. Probably. But, they, you know, they're never going to play all five, are they? So it's interesting. And, and, you know, what do you do if Johnny's back? Johnny and Brooke. and Harry Brook. I mean, what a fantastic dilemma. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. It could be one of the great, great Ashes. Anyway, it's, it's been a great that, series. I've got, I've got my tickets. I'm there on day one at Edgbaston. And, and actually, I've got all five for the Oval. Which is, I'm, 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 I, need, yeah. I need a small mortgage to, to pay for it. But well, I'm a member of the care. MCC, so I'm going to go to every day at Lords, and then yeah. for the first time, I'm going to go to Old Trafford. Uh, oh, no, the fact that I'm Old going Trafford. to Old Trafford, I'm going to Old Trafford. But I've been before. I'm the first time I'm going to Headingley, and I can't wait because okay. the, the, the excitement of it is just amazing. Anyway, I've never been to Headingley either. No, so, well, that um, that yeah. day, that day in what was it? 2019 was it? 2019? Yeah. 
Penn State. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Yes, yes, yes. We've, we've, um, we've, 130 um, or not out winning that game. That Ugh. was unfeasibly brilliant. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's been brilliant talking to you, James. Do you, would, you. Would, you, would you like to just tell us your latest novel that's out? Well, yes, I'm, I'm well writing a novel podcast. at the moment, which I'm finishing, but but the, um, the, the book I'm working on at the moment is Casino 44. So you mentioned Italy Sorrow earlier. I've done that, which is the last year of the war in Italy, and I've done Sicily. So the bit I'm doing at the moment is the missing bit. This is um, from the invasion of Italy in September 1943 to the fall of Rome in June 1944. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm a little bit behind. Got my work cut out for me in the next few weeks. Um, and, and the podcast, uh, and the, is the podcast continues. Yep, podcast continues. James Holland, thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. Thank you for having me on.